The exciting thing about this is that from everything that we know as of right now, your gut microbiome is malleable. It can be shaped. The choices that you make can make an impact in as little as 24 hours. Welcome to the Good Clean Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Purdy, integrative dietitian and nutrition educator. And today we are talking all about gut health and IBS with our guest, Dr. Will Bolsowitz. Dr. Bolsowitz, or Dr. B as he's known by many, is the award-winning gastroenterologist behind the Gut Health MD, which he launched on Instagram in 2016 as a way to connect with patients and share evidence-based information. He is board certified in internal medicine and gastroenterology and is an expert in digestive diseases. He is also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Fiber Fueled, and the soon-to-be-published corresponding cookbook, The Fiber Fueled Cookbook. Welcome, Dr. V. Mary Purdy, thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm excited to be here. Oh, great. Well, I'm excited to talk with you about everything gut health related. And you are this expert in gastroenterology, but I understand that you also struggled with some digestive issues of your own. So what was your experience like up front here trying to address and resolve some of your own personal gut health issues? I think it was actually a formative experience for me because I am someone who put great faith in our academic institutions. And I think you can see that if you look at my track record of education, where I basically was doubling, tripling, focusing. I mean, this was about trying to get the best education I could possibly get. And I was coming towards the end of it. And this was about 10 years ago, Mary. And Coming towards the end of this training, you know, like literally 16 years when you include college, 16 years that I spent to pursue this goal of becoming a gastroenterologist. And there I was, and I was suffering with digestive health issues of my own. I'm the GI doctor. I'm not supposed to be the patient. And I couldn't eat beans. I struggled with whole grains. They would give me abdominal pain, discomfort, sometimes diarrhea. And at that period of time, I was also having a lot of other health issues. So I was 50 pounds overweight, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, high anxiety, low self-esteem, low energy, and didn't really love the person that I saw in the mirror. And I knew that something needed to change. And there I was, education from Vanderbilt University, Georgetown for med school, Northwestern, I was the chief resident there, University of North Carolina, not only my GI training, but I was on an, on an epidemiology grant in the School of Public Health there, all this great training. And yet the pills and the procedures that are in my medical tool bag are not going to fix these problems that I have, nor did I want them to. I didn't want a pill. And so I needed some sort of way to address this. And initially I kind of did the very early thirties male type of thing, which is, I was like, you know what? If I work out enough, I can eat whatever I want. I tried that and I did that six days a week. And I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that I was doing 45 minutes of strength training six days a week, plus somewhere between a five to 10 K in the winter time on the treadmill, or if it was the summertime, I was in North Carolina, I would jump in the pool and do between 50 and hundred laps. And I, I grew stronger. I was faster. I was more efficient in my exercise, but yet these issues were not going away. And it was ultimately turning my attention to my diet 
and accepting that the food that I was raised on, the food that I celebrated, the food that I loved, was in fact the source of my problems and that I needed to change that. And so it sent me on a, a journey that uh, honestly, I am a very sort of, so I'm an extremely goal-oriented person. I have a five-year plan. I always think that five-year plan is going to come to fruition. And yet here I am on this podcast. This was not the five-year plan. I don't know what I'm doing here, except that a series of events happened in my life that started first with me healing myself through diet, through lifestyle, and then transferring this onto my patients, bringing it into the clinic and seeing amazing results to the point that I felt compelled to do something that was completely out of character for me, which was to share the story publicly. And that has parlayed from at first an Instagram account into being someone who appears on podcasts into my book deal in 2018 for Fiber Fueled, which came out in May of 2020, was a New York Times bestseller. Now, basically around 200,000 copies sold. And my second book coming soon, which I cannot wait to share with the world. Excellent. Well, that is quite a story. You know, I mean, I think those personal experiences, not only do they help us inform how we might work with patients, but they really resonate with the public. And so thank you for sharing this story, this 16-year journey that you've been on, trying to understand what was going on for you and realizing that dietary changes were at the heart of what maybe what needed to occur in order to improve that and resolve those issues. And you've got this incredible large following on social media. So obviously this is a topic that a lot of people resonate with. We know a lot of folks out there have digestive issues. And I be IBS in particular is rampant in our society. Talk to us a little bit about IBS. What, in your opinion or your experience, characterizes IBS? Well, IBS has a very clear definition of what we what what we as gastroenterologists would say qualifies as irritable bowel syndrome. And that definition actually was created by one of my mentors, Dr. Douglas Drossman, who's from the University of North Carolina. He actually started the Rome Foundation back in the 1980s, because what was happening was that they were seeing a pattern of symptoms in patients and didn't really have a way to describe this. And that really brings us forward to here we are, and like IBS is widely prevalent in the United States. So what is irritable bowel syndrome for those that are wondering? Irritable bowel syndrome is when a person has digestive symptoms, specifically abdominal discomfort, and that abdominal discomfort is also associated with a change in bowel habits. You need to have both, not just discomfort, but also either there's diarrhea or constipation or both. And classically, in the person who has IBS, what they'll see is that they get discomfort, they have a bowel movement, and then actually they feel better after the bowel movement. That's one of the classic things. Now, if you're listening to this at home and you're like, oh gosh, that's me. I have IBS. Well, I just I also want you to know that there are other things that can masquerade within this pattern. There are things that, you know, celiac disease or sucrase isomaltase deficiency. There are multiple different conditions that are identifiable that we need to first work on to make sure they're not there before we give you this label of IBS. And we have to be very careful about that because if we apply the label too early without turning over these stones, we are foregoing an opportunity to give people the most targeted, most well-directed treatment based upon what their diagnosis is. We have to figure out the diagnosis first. 
that diagnosis is key. And I heard you say celiac disease. And then I heard you say isomaltase deficiency, which I'm assuming is a deficiency of some kind of enzyme that helps us to digest maltose, the sugar that's found in grains. Is that correct? I could go on. We could literally do a whole podcast about the differential diagnosis for irritable bowel syndrome. But this specific condition, I think it's very relevant and important for people. Perhaps you have been diagnosed with IBS. If they have not tested you for what I'm about to describe, they should. This is congenital sucrase isomaltase deficiency, CSID. Sucrase is the enzyme that helps us to digest and process sucrose, which is table sugar. And isomaltase is an enzyme that helps us to process and digest carbohydrates that you will find in starches. And so people who lack this enzyme, which by the way, this is, it used to be thought of as a rare disorder when in fact, I was finding this with great frequency in my clinic, more frequently than celiac disease, which gets a lot of attention. The issue is that we didn't really have good testing until very recently. But people who have this condition, sucrase isomaltase deficiency, when they consume, for example, table sugar, which by the way, is in everything. Right. And also in healthy food, you can consume beets and they have sucrose. Sucrose is not necessarily bad. Right? It can be a part of healthy foods, but those foods would trigger symptoms in people that have this issue. And they would have, most of the time, bloating, discomfort, and in many cases, they'll have diarrhea. And so they get diagnosed as having irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea. And Mary, a quick story, a quick little anecdote that I think just to kind of illustrate this point, I had a patient who had been diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome and came to me for like a fifth or sixth opinion. Like this person had been to so many different doctors, not finding solutions, suffering for more than 10 years with irritable bowel syndrome. Well, it turns out that it was never irritable bowel syndrome. This patient had congenital sucrase isomaltase deficiency, CSID. We did the non-invasive breath test that is necessary to make that diagnosis. Once we discovered this is what she had, we initiated her on a supplement that she takes with meals, which by the way, is so easy. And it completely changed her life. Her symptoms went away entirely because it was never irritable bowel syndrome. She had been mislabeled. And so this is just an example of where to me, step one in like, no matter what your health issue is, it doesn't need to be your old bowel syndrome, no matter what your health issue is. Step one starts with firmly establishing the proper diagnosis, because if we don't know what we're treating, then how can we possibly treat it properly? I think you just broke open the world of digestive issues right there in the last five minutes. Cause I feel like so many people that I've worked with and that probably many people out there have worked with or who are experiencing these symptoms may have been misdiagnosed and may be getting treated for something that ultimately is not the root cause of what is going on for them. And let's actually talk about root causes, whether it's talking about the CSID, which is going to be my favorite new word to say at cocktail parties now. When we think about IBS, why are people struggling with this issue? Whether it's because they actually have CSID or whether it's because they have this pattern of symptoms that you talk about, abdominal discomfort, changes in bowel habits, a constipation, diarrhea, or a combination of those. Why is this happening? If we are just treating the symptoms, we aren't really getting to the root cause. So what are some of these 
root causes or contributing factors that may lead someone to have this this set of, of symptoms? So speaking to irritable bowel syndrome specifically, irritable bowel syndrome is interesting because it's so widely prevalent. So 10 to 15% of Americans have IBS. That makes it like literally 35 to 50 million people that need to be here in this podcast right now. And it's so widely prevalent, and yet there is no test to prove that you have IBS. The criteria that my mentor, Dr. Drossman, laid out all the way back in the 80s continue to be the way that we approach and diagnose irritable bowel syndrome, which is why we call it a syndrome. And this creates challenges. So your question is, what is the root of the problem here? If we want to fix IBS, let's not just patch it up. Let's not just withdraw the pain with some sort of painkiller of, of any variety or change the bowel movements. Let's actually fix the issue. So what is it? Well, from my perspective, Mary, this is an issue of the gut microbiome. The gut microbiome, this community, this ecosystem that lives inside of us, predominantly focused inside our large intestine, which is our colon, 38 trillion of them, which is literally taking all the stars in the sky, every single star within our galaxy, shrinking it down and putting that inside your colon a hundred times. That's how many microbes are living inside of every single one of us. These microbes, they're there with a purpose. They're not just like kind of hanging out. They actually are deeply intertwined with human health because if we go all the way back to whoever the first human was, the first human had a microbiome. And when we talk about evolution, we're not just talking about human evolution as if it's this isolated phenomenon with nothing else. Human evolution actually is truly co-evolution with these microbes. They helped us. We rose and we fell together. When we live longer, they live longer. So they want us around. And as a result of that, if you look, it's so fascinating to me as a medical doctor to first of all, consider how powerful this is. And second of all, to entertain that this isn't even human, nor is it a part of our body. And yet these passengers are completely intertwined with our digestion, our metabolism, our immune system, our hormones, our mood, our cognition, our brain health, and even the expression of our genetic code. Every time you hear a person talking about these topics, ultimately we could insert the gut microbes into that conversation because they are a part of that conversation. And so when we speak about your old bowel syndrome, if you were to take a microscope and zoom in on what's happening inside the large intestine, what you would see is a microbiome that's out of balance. And this is present for all people that have this condition. 100% of people that have your old bowel syndrome, we will find an alteration or disturbance within the gut microbiome. And if I were to, in simplistic terms, describe what's happening, basically what we're seeing is that Within our microbiome, there are good guys and there are bad guys. And in the case of a damaged gut, which I would call dysbiosis, but some people might use other terms like leaky gut is out there. There are less good guys 
there are more bad guys. And very important point, there is a loss of diversity within the microbiome. So there are less varieties of species and less balance. And this point is quite fascinating for us to consider because we're just understanding this about human health, gut health in the last 15 years. We're just understanding this for the first time. But if you were to go back 50 years ago or 100 years ago and you talk to a biologist about ecosystems, they would tell you that the health of an ecosystem, like the Amazon rainforest or the Great Barrier Reef, the health of these ecosystems is, is determined by the diversity of species that exist within that ecosystem. And here we are, and I'm telling you that this is the determinant of gut health, the diversity of species within the gut ecosystem. Yes, that, that diversity creates resilience within our own internal ecosystem or this, as, as I'm, I'm now going to call it, the galaxy in your gut, interfacing with all the different systems in your body. It's quite a, a phenomenal in interfacing that, that occurs. And so I'm hearing the dysbiosis, which is the, the disruption of, of the microbiome health, having too many bad bacteria, having not enough good bacteria, and the potential for intestinal permeability, aka uh, leaky gut syndrome, whatever people like to term it, but that that is actually one of the potential contributing factors or is intricately involved with a pattern um, such as IBS that people are, are, are experiencing. And so how does someone begin to determine that they have dysbiosis? What are they seeking out? What are the ways of measuring that? And then how do you, as a physician, begin to work with someone to help to resolve those issues, to improve the gut health of, of the microbiome? Well, I think one of the things that we can do, so first of all, let me say this. I am excited about where we are today and where we are going in the future with the research and the science that exists in this space. And this is not a fad. This is real. It's going to keep getting better. And we are making huge steps every single month. But we're not all the way there on every single topic. And so I say this because there are, for example, available at-home tests to look at your gut microbiome. And the problem is I would describe this as half-baked, where you can have a beautiful cake, and if you just wait for it to be properly cooked, you are going to relish that opportunity to eat it. But if you pull it out of the oven too early, you just got a mess. And that's kind of where we are with at-home testing or testing of the gut microbiome. We're not there yet. We have not validated that there is a test that you can do, whether it's a stool test, a blood test, a breath test, whatever it may be, to prove that there is dysbiosis. We're not there yet. But here's the way that I approach this as a gastroenterologist. First and foremost, the person who is suffering, not with like a one-day phenomenon, but the person who is chronically suffering with digestive health issues, struggling to process their food, suffering with food intolerances, discomfort, bloating, nausea, diarrhea, constipation. We could go down the line, acid reflux. There's so many, right? These people, like I am convinced 100% of them have disruption or disturbance of their gut microbiome on some level. I'm not talking about like, if I drink a gallon of milk, will I have diarrhea? We all will have diarrhea if you drink a gallon of milk. What I'm talking about is the person who's eating a routine meal with normal, moderate quantities of normal foods and yet is incapable of tolerating that. That to me indicates a disturbance of the gut microbiome. 
And sitting there in my in my seat as the gastroenterologist and observing these patients who walk through the door, what I tend to find is that if you look at their health history, you will find supporting and conform, confirmatory evidence. So what am I talking about? Well, gut the gut microbiome has been associated with alterations and disturbances of the metabolism. So they could have high blood pressure, high cholesterol. They could have type 2 diabetes. They could be overweight. They could have a history of coronary artery disease. This is all evidence of this. These have all been associated with the alteration disturbance of the gut microbiome. It could affect their immune system. Many of these patients have autoimmune or allergic type issues. Seasonal allergies would even count on some level asthma. So these are common issues associated with the gut microbiome. It could be their hormones. So polycystic ovary syndrome, endometriosis, breast cancer, ovarian cancer could be a mood disturbance chronic anxiety, depression, migraine headaches as a neurologic issue. So effectively, what you do is you say, okay, here's this person who first and foremost has digestive health issues. I find that the vast majority of people have this. And in addition, as supporting evidence in their medical history, we see all of these other diagnoses that have been associated with alteration or disturbance of the microbiome. I've already proven it. I don't need any more evidence. I don't need a test to tell me whether they do or they don't have this. I already know. So let's turn our attention to what can we do to try to get this better. And I think that the exciting thing about this is that from everything that we know as of right now, your gut microbiome is malleable. It can be shaped. The choices that you make can make an impact in as little as 24 hours. I mean, that's what we're seeing in our studies. It's unbelievable. I've read some great research to showcase that when people leave the States, for instance, and go to Mexico or go to a country in Africa, that their microbiome changes dramatically just by being in a different location and by some of the different foods that they are eating because there are different microorganisms that are living in those various different ecosystems. Let's take a brief pause to hear from our sponsor, Orgain. Orgain's Organic Protein and Superfoods Protein Powder is a tasty and convenient option to support your overall health. Packed with 50 organic superfoods, each serving of this smooth and delicious protein powder also contains 3 grams of fiber and 21 grams of plant-based protein from organic pea protein, chia seeds, and brown rice protein. For more information, visit Orgain.com. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. B. So let's talk about the food. Let's give some solutions to our listeners out there for what people can do. And I have a feeling we're going to be talking a little bit about fiber since your book is called Fiber Fueled. And we know that fiber feeds the gut microbiome and helps them to create those short chain fatty acids that nourish the gut lining. So talk to us a little bit about fiber and how it helps to optimize the microbiome. We have been sold a false narrative about fiber that is wildly outdated, and it's time for us to bring it into the 21st century. Bring it. So we all kind of grew up with this story about, or like we all witnessed grandma with her orange drink stirring it and taking taking that in the evening so that she could have a bowel movement. Okay, that's what we think fiber is. And many people would describe it as, oh, fiber just goes in the mouth and it sweeps through and it comes out the other end. Well, that's not completely true. And looking at the scientific evidence, Mary, prior to writing my book, I was like, people need to hear this. Fiber isn't boring. Fiber is sexy. 
And so I, I set out on this mission to write this book about how fiber is sexy, basically. Not titled Fiber is Sexy, it's titled Fiber Fuels. But basically, I, w- I went out there to try to put this out there. And so many people are like, fiber is boring. You can't write a book about fiber. No one will be interested in that topic. Well, let me tell you why fiber is interesting. So let's follow the path of fiber. It goes in the mouth. And by the way, fiber is found in all plants. Every single plant, no matter what it is, it has fiber. And not just exclusively plants, but almost exclusively, mushrooms also have fiber. And mushrooms are technically not plants. They're actually fungi. But I'm going to lump them in with plants. And this entire conversation, just include the mushrooms, even though they're technically not plants. We're making them honorary plants. So you consume fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, nuts, legumes, or mushrooms. They go in your mouth, you chew them up, and there's fiber in there. And that fiber is going to move through your intestines. And we as humans, as big, as strong, as complex as we are, we actually lack the enzymes to process and digest fiber. So the fiber is unchanged as it enters into your colon, which, of course, is where the 38 trillion microbes are sitting there waiting. And guess what? This is their preferred food. This is the ideal food because they get it fully intact. It was made by nature for them to arrive intact into the colon and they will burst into a feeding frenzy. And the enzymes that we lack, they have, and they have them in spades. They have the digestive enzymes to process, unpack, break down our fiber. So the fiber doesn't just pass through and come out the other end. I mean, some of it does, but it doesn't just do that. It is consumed by these microbes. They grow stronger. They become more powerful. And guess what? More powerful microbes means that they are more capable of doing their job supporting human health, not just digestion, but all the different things that I've been talking about. And the fiber doesn't disappear when it's consumed. It actually undergoes transformation. The microbes, it's like they're chefs and they take this fiber like an ingredient and they cook a delicious meal, especially for you as the human who just provided them these ingredients. They create short chain fatty acids, butyrate, acetate, propionate. These are, Mary, the most anti-inflammatory molecules that I've ever come across in all of my reading as a physician. And they are the result of consuming, quite simply, dietary fiber found in fruits, vegetables, whole grain seeds, nuts, and legumes, and mushrooms. So these short-chain fatty acids, just to kind of run through real quick what happens, we are talking about dysbiosis, loss of good guys, too many bad guys, breakdown of the gut barrier, increased intestinal permeability. Guess what the short-chain fatty acids do? Build up the good guys. Suppress the bad guys, E. coli, salmonella, shigelia. Perhaps you've heard of these. These are bad microbes suppressed by short chain fatty acids. Gut barrier restored. You want to fix the gut barrier? You want to you want to fix leaky gut? I'm literally telling you right now how to do this. Short chain fatty acids that come from dietary fiber. Colon cancer, our number two cause of cancer death, directly suppressed through multiple different mechanisms. Our immune system. This is a signaling molecule for our immune cells. of our immune system is right there in the lining of our gut. Short-chain fatty acids help to optimize, shape, 
form the immune system. We could talk about the ways in which short-chain fatty acids have proven to be relevant in COVID-19. The evidence is compelling. Metabolism, so like insulin sensitivity, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, all of these things can be affected by our gut microbes. Satisfaction after meal, like feeling full. Why does fiber allow us to feel full and not overeat? Short-chain fatty acids are the answer. They spread throughout the entire body having their healing effects. Literally, they go to the blood-brain barrier. Literally, they cross the blood-brain barrier, enter into the brain, and have healing effects there. So what we're talking about is powerful. It is not just your gut. It is your entire body that is receiving an anti-inflammatory effect. And this shotgun effect, though, has to start with the adequate consumption of fiber, which is a big issue because people are just not doing this. Right. And I think the average amount of fiber that uh, the typical American gets is somewhere around 15 grams a day, which we know is not enough. I mean, and the recommendation lies between somewhere between 25 grams to 38 grams per day. And I think in many schools of thought, even that is not enough. Our ancestors were probably eating close to maybe even up to a hundred grams of fiber a day. And they were probably doing a lot better than we were in terms of feeding those microbes and providing them with this feeding frenzy and making them into fabulous chefs to create these short chain fatty acids. So I hear that fiber is sexy, Dr. B. And I love that. And I think, you know, your book could have been titled that you might, you might've sold a few more copies, who knows? So how do we get fiber into people's diets? I heard nuts, seeds, legumes, beans, pulses, whole grains, and of course, our mushrooms, our beautiful mushrooms. What if someone struggles with digestion? You know, if we bring this back to IBS and make this a practical application, I've had patients and I'm sure patients out there and practitioners out there are going, gosh, I've got a patient every time they try and eat fiber, they are bloated and they feel terrible. How do we begin to work with patients who are struggling with IBS and may not do so well with fiber or certain types of fiber? Yeah, Mary, as someone who has worked with these groups of patients, people who suffer with digestive health issues, you know that it's not just, hey, more fiber is like categorically better for all people. And I think it's important because when it comes to the complexity of the human body, the sort of like simple answers that appear on the internet, I find to be a bit absurd because these are nuanced conversations. And even me as this advocate for fiber, like I'm the one who was presenting to Congress about fiber and the importance, the USDA, the importance of having fiber in our diet, right? But yet, even to my own patients, I don't say to every single one of them, hey, you need more fiber. There's a balancing act that needs to exist. And I think it really starts with having an understanding of the way that your body works so that you can make choices that work and are consistent with yourself. And I would draw an analogy. The consumption of fiber is very similar to lifting weights at a gym. So your gut is a muscle. It is adaptable. It can be trained and made stronger through challenges. But those challenges have to be the appropriate amount, right? So if it's January 1st and you haven't been going to the gym and you start going to the gym and you go and you lift the heaviest weight that exists, we all know what's going to happen. You're going to hurt yourself. Why would you do that? We all know that the appropriate approach within the gym is to go and start with the amount that you're actually capable of doing, where you don't hurt yourself. But by doing this, you are challenging your body 
And in that challenge, you grow stronger as a result of that on the other side. So like if I want to be able to bench press 300 pounds, then I go to the gym and I start at 100. And next week, maybe I do 105. And if you give it enough time, I can meet my goal. I just have to allow my body to adapt and adjust with what I'm doing. Your gut is a muscle. It can be trained. The consumption of fiber. You are not someone who is the victim of your gut and incapable of processing and digesting these foods. You have the ability to train your gut to process and digest these foods. You just need to know the approach just like the way that you do it in the gym. And to simplify this topic in the way that I described it in Fiber Fueled, and, and I do want to mention that there is more to it than just this, and that's really what my new book, The Fiber Fueled Cookbook, is about, and we'll talk about that more later on. But if I were to simplify this topic, it's like this. You start low. So don't decide that you're going to go plant-based and just jump in. Start low, low fiber with an amount that you can actually all right. And then you go slow. Start low, go slow. It was actually a Beastie Boy song. Low and slow is the tempo. Low and slow is the tempo, right? And that's like, I mean, I realize I'm dating myself by bringing out the Beastie Boys here. Oh, the Beastie Boys <laughs> live on forever. That was actually a song. And that's the idea that I want y'all to hear is that when you approach dietary fiber, you start low, you go slow, you ramp it up over the course of time. And just like you are building up muscle in the gym, you can build up tolerance to these foods over the course of time. So don't worry too much about the grams of fiber, but focus on what you enjoy and what you are able to tolerate. And then slowly over time, increase that. Great. And I think that's awesome advice. So these incremental changes, go low, start slow. And I'm going to give a shout out to chewing as well and eating slowly just as a way to set the digestive tract up for success. And we also know that as we increase fiber, we want to increase water to help with the digestion of fiber too. So shout out to that as well as the Beastie Boys. And Quick little actually, point on that, Mary. Thank Quick you. Point on that. So we have yeah. digestive enzymes. We have digestive enzymes in our saliva. Absolutely. And that includes proteases and also amylases. The amylases help us to process and digest our starches. And among those enzymes, the actually the starch digestion is the one that relies the most on your saliva to actually chew and process that food. And so this, I think that this is an important thing like that people understand that digestion actually starts in the mouth and it's not just in the colon. <laughs> and so we need to do that for sure. Yeah. And we could even say it starts in the brain with the cephalic phase, right? Of smelling a dish and getting some of those digestive enzymes, including that salivary amylase, getting all juiced up in your mouth. So we could talk about this for hours. The digestive tract is so fascinating and the incredible impact that it has on our body and our state of mind. I do want to hear about some of the foods and the recipes perhaps in this cookbook that you have coming out. So tantalize us with perhaps a, a recipe or two that you found to be particularly delicious sounding because we know when things are delicious and easy, people are much more likely to create them. One of the things that I love about plant-based eating is that you have all the colors, all the spices, all the flavors, all the textures, they're all there. And it's just a question of finding the combination that you enjoy. And if you look across the globe, many different cultures 
the origins of their dietary traditions are in plant-based eating, whether it's Mediterranean food or Mexican food or Southeast Asian food. And so one of the things that we did with this book is we made it a celebration of those culinary traditions from around the world. So I'm excited about, for example, the tofu banh mi or the tempeh lettuce wraps or the pozole from Mexico. So that to me is what makes plant-based eating so fun is that there's the different flavor profiles from all these different cultures and you can find it all on a plate that also feeds and fuels a healthy gut microbiome. That is fantastic. And I'm so glad you brought that cultural piece into it because very often it's easy to get stuck in, oh, the Mediterranean diet, when there are so many other dietary patterns from all over the world, as you mentioned, the banh mi, uh, the pozole uh, from Mexico. There's so many different ways of, of incorporating these that also focus on plant-based. So you've got this new book coming out this month, The Fiber-Fueled Cookbook, Inspiring Plant-Based Recipes to Turbocharge Your Health. Share a little bit about it for us. Oh my gosh, Mary, I'm so excited about this book and I cannot wait to share it with the world. And the thing that's interesting about it is that it's called the Fiber Fields Cookbook. And it is that, I mean, it does have 125 like completely delicious recipes by, by Alex Caspero, who's the registered dietitian who did all my recipes for Fiber Field. We have that, we have full color photography. It's absolutely beautiful and gorgeous. But if I could call a book a toolkit, I would. But that's bizarre. Like you can't call a book a toolkit, but this is a toolkit for gut health. I feel that I'm providing to the readers what they need to transform their health. So this is more than just plant-based recipes. This is also two protocols to teach people how to actually find the cause of their food intolerances, how to properly heal from those specific issues. I teach you how to sprout. I teach you how to ferment. I teach you how to make sourdough bread. I also teach you about lifestyle, which has nothing to do with the fork or the plate in your kitchen. So to me, Fiber Fueled was about getting you excited about gut health. Now that I have your attention, now that you're excited, I want to show you how to actually transform your health. Here are the tools within the Fiber Fueled Cookbook. I can't wait to share it. It sounds absolutely fantastic. I think it's going to be a life changer for a lot of people out there. I hope so. I want to lead us out with perhaps one last tidbit from you for our listeners out there who might be wondering, where do I start with beginning to improve my gut health? What would be a piece of advice you might give somebody who's struggling with digestive issues or who is a practitioner who's working with someone struggling with digestive issues? I think we've covered some very important topics, but if there were one message that I could get across to literally every single person on this entire planet. I don't care who you are. I don't care whether you have digestive health issues or not. If I could get this one message across, it is this. I want you to focus on the diversity of plants within your diet. So to rewind some of the important concepts from our conversation today, we talked about the importance of dietary fiber. We talked about how every single plant and mushrooms contain fiber. I want to just add on real quick that not all fiber is the same. Every single plant has unique types of fiber. Not every microbe is the same. These microbes are kind of like, you know, miniature versions of us. They have their own personalities. They have their own skills. Certain ones do certain things. 
and they have their own dietary preferences. Not every microbe likes kale. They have varying types of foods that they want in order to optimize themselves. And so my one message to everyone that I want them to hear, the most important thing is to focus on the diversity of plants in your diet. Eat a wider variety of plants because when you do that, when you have that diversity on your plate, it translates into more microbes, more species getting fed. When more species get fed, we are supporting a diversity within our gut microbiome. And we said earlier in the show, very early on, that that's a measure of health within the gut ecosystem, a diverse gut microbiome. So diversity on the plate translates into diversity within the gut, which is a healthy gut microbiome. And this is why, Mary, that this is not just like, hey, Dr. B's got an idea. This ain't just an idea. I'm a doctor. I'm coming forward with scientific evidence. In the largest clinical study to date, to allow us to make connections between our diet and lifestyle choices and the health of our gut microbiome, which was called the American Gut Project. But by the way, don't let that name deceive you. It was actually a global study. In this study, they found one clear, most powerful predictor of a healthy gut microbiome, and that was the diversity of plants in the diet. And specifically, in that study, the people with the healthiest guts were the ones consuming more than 30 varieties of plants per week. So I say to you, stop counting calories, start counting plants. Stop counting grams of fiber, start counting plants. Stop counting macros, start counting plants. When you're at the store, when you're in the kitchen, when you are preparing your plate, I want you to hear my voice. Dr. B says, Diversity of plants, diversity of plants, diversity of plants. Wonderful, Dr. B. Well, thank you so much. We heard it loud and clear, variety, diversity, and of course, fiber is sexy. We look forward to having you join us for more future episodes of the Good Clean Nutrition Podcast sponsored by Orgain, where we'll interview more subject matter experts on a variety of health and nutrition-focused topics. To stay up to date on the latest episodes of this podcast, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks so much for tuning in and see you next time.